economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of Reedy Melody Baker. I see you down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guests today are the political science power couple Maria Sobolewska and Rob Ford, who are both professor of political science at the University of Manchester in the UK. Maria works on the political integration and representation of ethnic minorities in Britain and abroad, as well as on public perceptions of ethnicity, immigrants and integration. Rob works broadly in the areas of public opinion, electoral choice, and party politics. Together, they published the book Brexit Land, Identity, Diversity, and the Reshaping of British Politics with Cambridge University Press in 2020, which won the prestigious WJM McKenzie Prize of the Political Studies Association. Welcome to the podcast, Maria and Rob. Our pleasure. So this is only the second time that I do an interview with two people. The first time I do it with a couple. So this is going to be interesting. Let's start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? I'll take this one first, Cass, because I'm probably the more interested in sports than Maria. I kind of have to give two answers in a way because there's a national team, which is the England cricket team, because my dad was mad into cricket. So I followed that from quite early. And then in terms of a club, which I know you're big into club sports, it was Leicester City in the Martin O'Neill era because my older brother lives in Leicester and is a complete sports fanatic. So even though I didn't grow up anywhere near Leicester, that was the first (laughs) club sports team I really followed. Yes, this was actually a tricky question for me because until my kind of mid-twenties, the answer would have been none. I don't have one, but now I actually am an avid fan of cricket as well, probably because I was made to, but I have now adopted the love of cricket entirely and I support Lancashire Cricket Club. So that's my team. (laughs) There we go. I don't think we had a cricket club before. Second, what is your favorite political song? So I come from Poland and for the first decade of my life, Poland was a communist country and my family was extremely political. Both my parents were actively engaged in opposition. And so I grew up to the song The Walls, Mury in Polish by Jacek Kaczmarski, who was extremely influential songwriter. And Mury, this song has become almost an anthem of Polish opposition throughout the 80s. And when in the very early 90s we were shedding communists, this was sung on national television. And of course, when the Berlin Wall was falling, it was like this song was literally coming to life. So that is my favorite one. Yeah, this reflects the differences in our biographical experiences. Maria grew up through some of the most exciting events in European political history. I grew up in the suburbs of Surrey where nothing really happened. So my favorite political songs, the first Rage Against the Machine album, a lot of nostalgia for teenage rebellion, you know, just about everything in authority, that kind of vague rebelliousness that that you have if you come from a very comfortable, stable background. So much more boring story than Maria's. I love that. That's the best summary of support of Rage Against the Machine I've ever heard. Finally, what is your favorite political book? 
I must admit that even though I obviously read a lot of them, they are not really my kind of take it to the beach and read on holiday types. And so one that I can name as my absolute favorite was one that was so good. I actually did take it on holiday and read it on the beach. And it's absolutely opened my eyes to a lot of British political history of recent years. And it is Harriet Harman's autobiography. Harriet Harman was one of the earliest female MPs from New Labour and the way she writes about gender in politics, and this is totally not my area at all in terms of research, but the kinds of historic changes that we've witnessed over the course of our lives in terms of how women have been excluded and now, you know, the advancement is basically light years and people like Harriet Harman were basically actors on the front line of that change. And that book is truly fascinating. So I do recommend it for your beach holidays. This is another difference between the two of us because I do read politics books on the beach, on the train, basically everywhere. I have like a whole library of them. I kind of have to give two answers because it's really difficult to narrow this down. The first one is What It Takes by Ben Kramer, which is, in my mind, the best book about political campaigns and political candidates ever written, possibly partly because it's written by a sports writer. The guy's background was in baseball reporting, I think. It's about the 1988 presidential campaign, which features a young, barely known Democratic outsider called Joe Biden running and failing to win. wonder what happened to him. And then in terms of British politics... The book or books that first made me really want to be an academic researching this kind of stuff were the British General Election of Books by David Butler and a series of collaborators. David Butler sadly left us just this week at the age of 98. And his books were the first books that convinced me that you could be analytical and rigorous yet tell a really stomping good story about elections all in one book. You know, that basically set me on the path I've been on ever since. That was a beautiful endorsement. Before we delve into Brexit, I just wanted to ask Rob how it is to share a name with a famous politician, the now late Canadian populist Rob Ford, particularly in the age of social media. Yeah, I mean, that's been a funny one because he's not just Robert Ford. He also goes by Rob Ford, just like I do. And for a long time, sort of final few years of his life, if you searched for Rob Ford on Twitter, my handle was the first one that came up. So whenever he used to do something outrageous in Toronto, there'd be this great big spate of like notifications of people, like angry Toronto <laughs> residents would come and shout at me. And one time I got kind of a bit fed up with this and I wrote a couple of tweets basically saying, look, I'm sorry, I'm not this guy. I'm a really boring professor from Manchester, England. Could you just leave me alone? And that just made things worse because that went viral on Canadian Twitter. And then I ended up on Canadian TV basically explaining to them that I wasn't their mayor, which was pretty weird. So I still get the occasional person popping up, even though the other Rob Ford hasn't been with us for a few years now. I think because his brother is, is yeah. governor, they confuse the brothers and then they confuse the brother with me. So yeah, I would not recommend sharing a name with someone like that. So let's move to Brexit. Although most listeners will know most of this, I still would like to talk a little bit about the background of the Brexit decision. First of all, can you shortly describe how the so-called Brexit referendum came about? 
it's a story that kind of can be traced all the way back to when Britain first joined the EU in a way, because it was always a divisive decision. And from certainly the Maastricht Treaty onwards, there was a substantial chunk of the main centre-right party, the Conservative Party, that wanted to, at a minimum, renegotiate the terms under which Britain was in the EU. And then increasingly, they moved towards being in favour of leaving. And pretty much every Conservative leader from William Hague onwards had to appease that wing of the party in order to secure the leadership. They had to throw them some red meat on this. Cameron initially tried to defuse it by saying he would leave the main centre-right group in the European Parliament, but that wasn't enough for these people. So they kept making a lot of noise about it. And round about that time, we're talking about 2011, 2012 now, the UK Independence Party really took off electorally and that kind of put rocket boosters behind the Eurosceptic wing in the Conservative Party. So they forced out of Cameron a promise that if the Conservatives won a majority in the 2015 election, that they would deliver an in-out referendum on EU membership. It's still not clear to me and many others whether or not Cameron really expected that he would win a majority at the next general election. It was unusual for a party to go up in terms of seats. So he might have thought that this was a promise that didn't really mean too much. But then he did, against the polling, get a majority in 2015. So he kind of had no choice at that point but to put the referendum on the table. Another one of those historical counterfactuals is did he have to do it straight away at the beginning of a five-year term? Could he have waited a bit longer? Well, we'll never know. But that's how we got there. So always in the background, then in the foreground, then the pledge comes, then he has to cash the check, and then on we go. Right. Now, during the campaign, there were two broad camps, the Remainers and the Leavers, but those camps were heterogeneous and reasonably internally divided. Who were the main actors in the campaign? So we are assuming that you're speaking in terms of actors, in terms of the kind of types of voters that have contributed to these campaigns and kind of opted for either remain or leave. And in Brexitland, we describe these ideal types of voters as divided on ethnocentrism. So ethnocentrism is this tendency to think about politics in terms of groups, right? So if you are a very highly ethnocentric voter, you generally find other groups threatening and you don't like them. And in very broad terms, you rally around the flag of your own group and you want preferential treatment and you want to defend your own group. And that kind of ethnocentric voter, generally as a rule of thumb, is much more likely to be a white voter in Britain. And it is much more likely that they are going to be older on average and, of course, very importantly, less educated. So one of the big things that education gives us is a slightly more broader outlook, more cosmopolitan outlook on the world. And so this kind of what we call in Brexit land conservative identity voter has definitely been the core voter of the Leave campaign. But of course, as you said, there is huge heterogeneity and these voters might be more conservative or less conservative and, of course, from different kinds of backgrounds and geographies as well. However, the more heterogeneous group was actually the group that formed the basis of the Remain vote. So this group in opposition to those ethnocentric voters we call identity liberals, but they actually are hugely divided by how they ended up in that camp. So the first group, the more numerous group of identity liberals, those younger on average and well-educated white voters who basically acquired this cosmopolitan outlook as a result of going to university. And in Britain, which is a predominantly white country, it's a main backbone of that 
Remain campaign. However, into that coalition of Remain, we also add ethnic minority voters in Britain. And because ethnic minorities found a lot of the Remain campaign on average quite ethnocentric and oriented towards arguing about their place in society, even though they personally might be quite ethnocentric themselves as well, they really did feel threatened and therefore joined that coalition. So again, this strong theme of heterogeneity, but this ideal type of voter as an identity liberal and identity conservatives. That's the kind of two camps that we describe in Brexit land. Now, we all know that Brexit won, but there were significant geographical, but also demographic changes. What were some of the most important divisions within that vote? So, as we already said, in Brexit land, we think that ethnocentrism was the main value cleavage. But of course, this value cleavage, as I already mentioned, was underpinned by demographic cleavages. And I think the most significant two social changes that we think played a huge role are the rise of higher education. So we go from Britain of very small elite access to higher education. I think it was fewer than 7% of British people went to university at all after the Second World War. We now have generations that almost half of all teenagers leaving high school choose to go to university. So that rise in higher education is a huge social change. The changes people's values, political values and personal values enormously. And at the same time as Britain is becoming this completely different country in terms of values, it is also becoming much more diverse. So of course, as a colonial power, Britain always had some ethnic minority presence, but this was usually just concentrated in the kind of coastal towns in London. And after the Second World War, we see a huge influx of post-colonial citizens. And of course, this is because Britain creates British citizenship only after the Second World War. And when this concept of British citizenship is created, it is basically identical to British subjecthood. So everybody in the entire world that is under the British crown becomes the British citizen and therefore can arrive and work and live in Britain. And quite a few colonial subjects who then became British ethnic minorities have availed themselves of this right. And because they have arrived here in such numbers, the existing population of Great Britain started noticing this influx, started having opinions, and some, as ever, broke in favor and some against. And the fact that some of those people have broken against has started this long-term political process of political parties positioning themselves on immigration. And we say in Brexit land that how the parties fell on either side of this immigration divide, whether in favour, whether against, to this day has consequences for British politics and definitely had consequences for Brexit. Right, because that is the main claim of Brexit land. The Brexit decision is the outcome of a long and slow process. Does that mean that Brexit was the end? Or was it a catalyst of a process that is still ongoing? Can you explain the process and where you see where we are in that process? As Maria was explaining, both of those changes, mass higher education expansion, mass migration and ethnic diversification were sort of ongoing multi-generational, multi-decade processes that predated the whole debate over Brexit, but kind of provided the soil in which this more recent mobilisation was kind of harvested. So you could see, and you can see if you go back and look at historical survey data from the 1990s or the 2000s or even the 1970s, that there were these very big divides between 
between graduates and school leavers, ethnic minorities and the majority on lots of issues, but they weren't sort of mobilized into the political conversation as a main dividing line. And what has happened on the issue of the EU and Brexit is not so different from what has happened in many European countries in terms of the radical right mobilization that in many other countries wasn't focused primarily on Europe, but was focused on the issues of immigration, social change, identity change, Islam, and so on. So in all of those countries, you see an electorate of very nationalistic, socially conservative, populist, low trust, generally older, not every country, white voters who take a look at the social changes of recent decades and they're opposed to them. What is unique in Britain is that that ended up being seen through the lens of the EU and Brexit. And that, to my mind or our minds, is also an illustration of how political actors are not passengers in processes of social change. They shape and funnel the forces that are out there. We ended up with an identity debate that was focused on the EU and Brexit because some of the biggest political actors on the stage wanted to frame that argument in terms of Brexit. So that's how the same kinds of voters with the same kinds of backgrounds and divides and values that we see elsewhere ending up in an argument about immigration control or about the role of Islam in society or secularism or so on. In this country, they ended up channeling that argument into and through the issue of Brexit and the EU. But then the second point of sort of path dependency here is the referendum itself. For me, as someone who's really interested in partisanship and tribal identities and so on, the really fascinating thing about the referendum was it was like a mass production line for political identity. Overnight, you went from a situation where the words leave and remain had no political resonance whatsoever to a situation where 80% of the people in Britain identify with the tribe of leave or with the tribe of remain, attribute all sorts of content to that tribal identity, all sorts of stereotypes to their side and the other side. And the word catalyst, which you use, that's the right word for it, in my view, because that has then kind of turbocharged the divides and really embedded them into the political debate ever since. Like basically every British opinion pollster now, for example, will always ask people whether they voted leave or remain. And you'll see on like so many aspects of political debate, though not all, not COVID, for example, you will see really big differences in terms of leave and remain. So it's kind of mobilized something that was already latent there in the electorate, but then crystallized it out and the tribal identities themselves add a further element to it. So that's the place I think we are at now. The mobilizing argument is passed. We've reached a kind of new institutional status quo. The demographic changes are still ongoing. And the legacy of the referendum in its aftermath is that there's still these extraordinarily resonant political identities out there. If you use the word leave or remain with the British voter, it immediately brings a bunch of stuff to their minds. So that, I think, will continue to resonate for a long time yet. Right. Now, of course, these identities are created and maintained by political actors, by media actors, which might be one of the reasons why they remained relatively stable. But what we saw over the last truly shocking months in terms of British politics is that we actually now do see a change. Like since Brexit, the Remain versus Leave distinction was pretty stable, was very stable actually, particularly given the turmoil of the country in economic and political terms. To a large extent, the partisanship was pretty stable. And now we see this complete implosion of the conservative support. And at the same time, 
we also, for the first time, see a clear shift into about 60% now being for remain or even return, and about 40 leave. How do you explain that? And do you think this is just a short shock or is this a process going forward? And if so, how does that relate to your kind of long and slow transformation of British politics thesis? So I hate to be a stickler for detail, but I feel there's only one poll really that says 60% are willing to rejoin, right? So I think 60% more reliably say that leaving the EU was a bad thing, which is slightly different than willing to rejoin. But yes, there is clearly a shift. And I think two kind of things explain it. One is and this is almost a cop-out answer, which is that a lot more younger people joined the electorate since uh, 2016. So, of course, Brexit referendum is quite old now. And as we showed, I think even in a blog two years after the referendum, already after two years, there probably would have been about 50-50 breakdowns. So that kind of momentum for more younger people who are more cosmopolitan joining the electorate is just continuing. And so we would expect an increase in the Remain coalition just on a basis of of continuing demographic change, right? So actually, the question should be almost the opposite, which is the counterfactual here is if Brexit was a huge success, maybe that wouldn't have happened. But because it hasn't been a resounding success so far, more people coming into the electorate just think it wasn't a good idea to start with. But I do think there is another thing going on which is the fact that we have had that long period of arguing how to leave the EU and then followed really shortly afterwards by the pandemic. And so the kind of conversation and soul searching of whether Brexit was good or bad for us has been basically delayed. And now that COVID is over, we have had some time to look at the politics of today and we see our economy hugely diminished, much more than comparable Western European countries. And I think to more people, that reality that they woke up poorer and in a much worse functioning economy and society and political sphere just has hit home for the first time since the pandemic's finished. You also asked how this affects our key thesis. I think our key thesis was that even though the long-term demographic changes create value divides in society, these value divides are not really enough to create political change. So we argued that two additional stages need to be taken into account. The first one is activation of those values. And this has happened in British society because of the increase in immigration that has heightened the perceptions of threat, kind of ethnocentric threat amongst people who didn't like immigration and were high in in-group preferences. But the even further stage that is necessary for any political change is that that activation is followed by a political mobilization of those voters. So there has to be a political actor who has to mobilize those voters who care about an issue, any issue, and in this case, immigration. And I think as a result, we never did think that Brexit was inevitable you know, the truth is that it won't be inevitable going forward. This conversation about diversity and immigration, of course, will come and go because there isn't anyone who is particularly activated along the lines of diversity and immigration. In fact, salience of immigration has fallen enormously, despite the media and politicians continuing to talk about it. And as a result, there isn't this opportunity to mobilize voters along those lines anymore. Another conversation has been moving more towards economy and how Brexit is bad or good for economy. 
And I do appreciate that very much in the book that on the one end, it does have this kind of demographic change thing, but also not what you see here in the US very strongly, this kind of demographic determination that by definition, when demographics change, politics change as if politics is purely passive and doesn't actually like shape particularly the opinions of different groups. Another good point that you raised was it isn't necessarily 60% that wants to return, but it's about 60% that at this moment says that Brexit was wrong. And this reminds me of the split of Czechoslovakia. At the point that it actually split in the 1990s, there was a marginal group within the Czech Republic and an even more marginal group in Slovakia that supported it. And five years later, me and some friends were standing in Bratislava at the main square celebrating Slovak independence, right? And so how do you see a post-Brexit UK? Is that going to be a UK that wants to go back in? Or can you also see simply Britain becoming kind of okay with Brexit as a reality and just creating a closer relationship with the EU while staying outside? Or do you think this is going to divide British politics for decades to come? I think I would divide this question much like we do often in the book. We, we, like you say, we're, we're not keen on you know simple equations of demography to destiny, and we think that leads people up sort of cul-de-sacs in terms of analysis. It's important to remember politicians have agency. So I think the question is about how will the mass public move, but then how will politicians perceive and respond to that move as well? On the first one, I think the really important questions to watch and track are what share of voters are still spontaneously identifying with one side or the other from the Brexit argument? And to what degree does that identification predict their political attitudes, their political behavior? At the moment, the answers are still a lot, much of the time, and quite a lot of predictive power too. So it's still resonant in the minds of voters, although we're starting to see some evidence that that's beginning to fade in terms of at least intensity. But then the other question is, how does the political class perceive and respond to this? And here, I think we're going to see a very big asymmetry between the right and the left in British politics. So for the Conservatives, any kind of conversation that begins with let's rethink Brexit is impossible for them to have at the moment. The whole elite class is completely dominated by pro-Brexit people. And even the ones who privately would express doubts about it, they can't. It's a shibboleth. It's a sacred cow for them. And I can't see that changing. If they suffer a major election defeat, that normally leads parties to question their assumptions. But I think even then, it'll be a number of years because their membership is even more tribally pro-Brexit than they are. So that will pull them in that direction. They don't want to anger members and so on. So I think on their side, you know, it will be regarded as the settled will of the people and a good thing. And that will be the mantra for a long time. But I think the more interesting question is, what about the centre-left? The smaller liberal left parties have been vocally anti-Brexit from the start. And during the post-referendum negotiation process, Labour got gradually pulled into an anti-Brexit position by voters of that kind. Since then, under the Starmer, they've snapped back to a kind of, we accept it, we don't talk about it, but we'll make it less bad in some unspecified way type position. If they end up in government, I think it's going to get really interesting because on the one hand, they're really keen to move in a pro-European direction. These are pro-European people and they recognise the economic benefits of doing so. On the other hand, they're absolutely terrified of reactivating and remobilising this leave-remain divide because it really hurts them them electorally, in particular because the system 
it's first past the post. It's very geographically structured. And the kind of leave swing voters are really concentrated in seats that Labour need to win, marginal seats. So the way I can see them making that work at the elite level is they need to have a conversation about Europe that's not a conversation about Brexit. They need to have a fresh start. You'll see activists often talking about, oh, why can't we reopen the question of Brexit? No. What you need to do is vocally insist that you're not reopening the question of Brexit while actually reopening a question about relations with Europe. If you can get voters to see it as a new conversation rather than restarting the old conversation, that would be where I would see the kind of ideal point for the centre-left being. And of course, that would also unlock a growing majority in terms of voters who think Brexit was a bad idea, think that the outcome is not really working, want to see an improvement. So, political predictions are of course a hazardous business but if I was to predict where I would think the pro-EU side in British politics will go it will be towards trying to start a new conversation about the relations with Europe that's not about re-arguing the EU referendum so for example any kind of argument that's about having a second referendum is a non-starter in that regards because it will inevitably be seen through the lens of the first referendum but a discussion about new customs treaties a discussion about new deregulation or alignment with EU rules that's a different matter I think that's where we may end up. But that also would put labor between the two camps, right? They would directly get criticized by the Lib Dems and the really pro-EU part of being wishy-washy and not really being pro-European, while at the same time, conservative camp and particularly, of course, you're still very conservative and pro-Brexit media would kind of use this to paint labor as kind of an elitist betrayal of the voice of the people, right? Is that a possibility for a new far right to emerge in Britain? Because both Brexit itself, which of course made the whole concept of the UK Independence Party obsolete, as well as the phenomenal move to the right of the current Conservative Party leaves little space for a new far-right party. One would assume, though, that the Conservative Party one day is going to move a little bit closer to the centre or want to present itself as such. Would a new far-right in Britain, should it emerge, be still around this Brexit issue? Or do you see it more as just domestic, classic, more continental far-right about diversity immigration? Again, I think this is a question where path dependence is likely to play a big role because at least for the next, I'd say, five to 10 years, the answer to the question what will happen on the far right or radical right of British politics has a four word question as its answer, which is what will Nigel do? Nigel Farage is still so dominant a figure on that part of politics that if we're to see any kind of electorally or politically consequential movement, it's likely to be one that has him at its head. We've already had one. He launched what was essentially a one-issue personal party, the Brexit Party in 2019, which more or less immediately hijacked the agenda for the most hardline leave people within the Conservative Party. And my suspicion is if we get another uptick in radical right politics in Britain, it will take a similar form. Nigel Farage will have some issues that he thinks he can capitalize upon. And as with UKIP, as with the Brexit Party, his central goal will probably be in trying to hijack the agenda of the Conservative Party and pull it in the direction of his preferences. In terms of whether he'll use Brexit, I think it's very likely he will, because even if Brexit tribal partisanship fades in the electorate as a whole, in the kind of electorate that's radical right inclined, 
They're much more ethnocentric. They're much more tribal. These are going to be people for whom the shibboleths of leave and notary Brexit, Brexit was betrayed, we've been let down. All that stuff will have great appeal with them. And Farage is a practiced master at playing on those kinds of sentiments. So I think it will have Brexit at its heart. It'll have a policy agenda at its heart that's about dragging the conservatives to the socially conservative right on issues like immigration, English nationalism, maintaining a distant stance from the EU will probably be the big ones. Farage has also become very anti-green lately, so that could end up being part of it too. And I should also add, Although we're thinking about this as some sort of development that may be years in the future, the Conservative Party is right now terrified of the possibility of a Farage-type party re-emerging to its right. And a lot of its extremely radical right-type rhetoric and behavior on immigration and asylum is largely explainable by that fear. Farage doesn't even have to have a party. He just has to occasionally express the view that he might one day want to launch another one again in order to pull the Conservatives rightwards in this area. So in a sense, he's still exercising this gravitational pull, even without being in the electoral arena. That's a pretty depressing state of affairs for British politics. Finally, what's the greatest misunderstanding about Brexit? So I think there are quite a few. So this is uh, hard to choose just the one. But I think the one that perhaps has the biggest kind of potential to be socially damaging is this kind of view uh, that is very frequently presented that Brexit has made Britain into a meaner country, a kind of more racist, less liberal, less tolerant country. And I think there are two kinds of sources of this misunderstanding. So the first one is that, yes, it has enabled the kind of the voicing of various opinions that already existed that were quite unsavory and intolerant. And of course, the voicing of these opinions is already harmful for the people that it is aimed at. So in that way, Britain, certainly in that period of time around the referendum, has become a meaner country in terms of its rhetoric. And as we know, the Conservatives then kept up this rhetoric of war on woke and generally the kind of adages of it's not racist to be fighting over immigration and not wanting immigration up. However, this really covers up the reality, which is that Britain is so much more tolerant than it was in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s and even 90s. Right. So what has happened to our society, and we do try to map that in Brexit land as well, despite scarcity of reliable data on this, is that everybody in Britain has become a lot more tolerant. However, this has happened at two different speeds. The first group that we had, this ideal type of voter who voted to leave was the identity conservative voter. And that voter has become more liberal, but much more slowly than the identity liberal voter who has ended up voting for Remain. So these two different camps of Remain and Leave are different in terms of how tolerant they are. And that gap is very big and very noticeable, especially after Brexit. And so people are panicking about it because they haven't seen it maybe before. They've not realized that it's there. But it's always been there. And in fact, it was larger. So this very important thing to remember is that even those people who we now look at them and say, oh my God, they're so intolerant, but actually they are so much more tolerant than their grandparents and their parents were. And so they really feel very upset about those accusations of racism that are waged against them. Everybody in British society basically agrees that being a racist is a bad thing and wants to avoid being accused of it. And so we do kind of describe almost this tug of war over the definition, what does it mean to be racist, to be intolerant? 
And people on the right actually want to reject those descriptions as intolerant and racist. And so this is actually not only a misunderstanding about Brexit, but actually a way in which this Brexit conflict might continue even after we stop talking about it and stop talking or worrying about Europe. That kind of tug of war over who is the righteous, tolerant, lovely person and who is the bad person racist, you know, that might emerge in many other areas of policy, right, that aren't related to Europe and Brexit. We see some of that in America, for example, around various welfare policies and health policies. And we worry that if that is to continue in Britain, that actually might spill over although around all these other policy areas. And therefore, I guess that's the worst misunderstanding and the one that needs to be corrected the most. Everybody is becoming more tolerant. Britain is a more tolerant country than it used to be. And we just have to put those arguments behind us a little bit, I think. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Maria and Rob. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us, Cass. Thanks. You can follow Maria Sobolewska on Twitter at at Prof Sobolewska and Rob Ford at at Rob Ford Manx. And please buy their book, Brexit Land, Identity, Diversity and the Reshaping of British Politics, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020, at or through your independent bookseller. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads, with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall, and I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and read his melody later. I'm seeing down a dunker. Playing with his beard. No wonder that that's capital turned out a little weird.